I'm an American. This is the Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Mom Show. Liberty Moms are the real defenders of the home front. We are the original secretaries of defense. We are there when it comes to defending our families and our communities, and we have a great lineup for you today. This is Delane England, and I'm so excited to have my co-host, Chris Kimball, join me today. We don't have very many opportunities to do this together, but We are going to start with Liberty Mom, Holly McClure. She is so amazing. What a great Liberty Mom she is. And Liberty is, she knows the Constitution. She understands her rights. And she is an amazing lady who has really done so much for our entire state. Holly, we are so happy to have you join us. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Holly, last year when your school district said your children could not return to school, unless they were willing to test, they had to test to stay. And you said, you know, you said, that's not, uh, that's unconstitutional. That's not okay. So what did you do? What did you decide that you had to do? So we found out when we came back from the holiday break, the Christmas break, that they had reached um, a threshold. Uh, They said the threshold was 15 cases. They didn't really provide any scientific justification for that. They just said, we've got 15 positive cases in the school. We're going to go remote for 10 days. And then we come back in order for um, you to participate. This was all you was all students to participate in in in-person learning. Um, You will have to take a COVID test every two weeks. And my husband, I just said, no, no, we've gone through the whole year with the kids masked. They've got the arrows in the hallway. There's no lockers. There's everything's been sort of impacted. They had by that time, they had also started test to play. So any of the kids doing extracurricular activities already had to test every two weeks in order to participate in those. And my husband and I just felt like it's just, it's too much. You can't use children's in-person education to force us to consent to a test, to a medical procedure, to a test for our child. So we wrote a letter to the district and to the principals. So our kids were at two different, they're teenagers, but they were at two different schools and said, we're not participating in this. And we're not going, we don't agree to go remote. We have a legal, an explicit legal right. Constitutional right. It's in the the Utah state constitution. You're specifically guaranteed a right to an in-person education. And and also we have, there's a legal right to consent or to not consent to medical treatment. You get that when you go to the hospital, right? To the doctor, you, you have a right to that. Um, And we said, you know, we said, no, we don't consent and we don't consent to go remote. So. They didn't really quite know what to do with us, I think. <laughs> They're kind <laughs> of used to people just going along. And people at that point just wanted their kids in school. So they yeah. were willing to give up their liberties to have something that they wanted. And that is where you are such a liberty mom, such a shining example of sacrifice that impacts so many other people. Well, that's very kind of you. But yeah, it was just, I mean, it was very frustrating. So I think, just the, you know, in the principal's defense, if I can offer them a defense, they they wanted to stay 
open to in-person school. They did not want to close the school. And so they really felt they were doing the right thing. Uh, so kids, you know, this is really frustrating. We're frustrated that you're, you're being used. You're the ones that are going to kind of suffer um, over this policy, which was also just kind of another, you know, thorn, thorn in the side over the whole thing. So they went to school. We went every, the entire school went remote. They went back to in-person and they started testing the kids in groups. And so our kids state came up and they didn't go get tested. And then we got, I think we got a notice for our younger saying, Hey, you're, you know, your younger missed the test date. They've been rescheduled, rescheduled the test date. My younger didn't go again. And then I got a call one morning from um, the principal of the school saying, uh, Hey, we have your child in isolation on campus. So they put my younger child in a room with a, I think it was basically the detention room by themselves with a parent. And my child was told, open your laptop, you know, and you're going to have to attend your classes sort of remotely here on campus in isolation. You're not allowed to go to the bathroom. You're not allowed to go into the hallways when the other kids are around. So, so discriminating against your children, treating them as if they're not equals. Yeah. And my kids were, you know, they're healthy. We're not exactly. No one had any symptoms. No one was, there were no evidence. Healthy. Nothing had changed. Yeah. All conditions were the same. It was just now suddenly they had to test. So um, I wasn't very happy. <laughs> First thing I did was went and prayed for some strength. And then I called the uh, our county sheriff's department and said, hey, my child, I believe, is being illegally, unlawfully quarantined, put in isolation at school. I'd like to have a, a deputy meet me up at the school and um, talk to the principal. And I want to file a report. And the the county sheriff's department sort of pushed us to the city police. There's a resource officer that works at the school. And so I met the resource officer there, met the principal there. I had my phone and told everyone, Hey, I'm going to, you know, we're going to file this report and I'm going to film what we're saying on my phone, let everyone know. Um, and we had a discussion and, and I filed a police report that they were illegally isolating my child. Um, and the principal really wasn't going to budge. He told me under no uncertain terms that every day that I sent my child to school, my child would be put in isolation on campus. And so, uh, you know, clearly that's not what my, they're teenagers. Like this is the last thing in the world that they want, right? No kid at any age, but particularly that age didn't want this. So I said, we're going to take my child home under duress. Do not mark me down as agreeing to remote learning. And then every day that um, they were home, I wrote into the attendance office and said, Hey, we're, we're at home today under duress. And then about a week later, the same, same thing happened for my older child call from the principal. Um, I ch- your child's in isolation. And so same thing. We, we filed a police report and then they were home. They were home doing remote learning. And at this point, it's gotta be pretty feeling pretty depressing, pretty deflating. Cause you've really worked, you've done your due diligence, you've worked hard, you've done everything you can. And now your kids are home, which is the whole point is that you wanted them. They want to be in school. Right. And it's more, you know, of course it's your, it's your kid. It's just so irritating. It's just so frustrating. And I don't understand both my husband and I were just, I don't, we don't understand the constant attention on the children. Science is really clear. It's not something that affects, it's not dangerous to them. And we didn't celebrate that. We have just constantly punished them 
with the masks and the distancing and the isolation and getting yelled when you're trying to talk to your friends and you pull your mask down. And I mean, there was all kinds of just ridiculous. And the remote learning, like why are we remote learning yeah. when kids have a 0.000507 chance of even getting it? And, and then you're testing them with the tests that can't even determine infectiousness on top. So it just felt like right. it was just one, honestly, it was obviously the legal, the legal issue was, was annoying. I mean, we have a right to refuse consent. Like no, everyone should be concerned about that. Um, but just the, it was just like another lie that we were being asked to participate in, frankly. Holly, do you mind if I ask which uh, district your kids yeah, were? We did. We didn't want to talk about that, Chris. Okay. <laughs> we can do. Uh, yeah. A, a very, I'm yeah, curious. And, and then which county, because the sheriff's office is kind of um, sketchy on, on how they handled that with you. Well, it's, I think most sheriffs would, because it's the school, sheriffs like to kind of keep their hands off the schools. We have this, our whole society has this idea that schools are off limits, that they have their own government basically in schools. So, um, but it happened in Utah. It did happen in the state of Utah. And so, so then Holly, what did you decide after that happened? They're home for a couple of weeks. And what did you guys decide you had to do? So, I mean, we definitely wanted to sue over it because it was, it was, there were a lot of issues we thought were illegal. Um, isolation, the, the forcing us to consent to the, to the test in order to have the in-person learning. So we, we knew we wanted to um, take it to court. And at that time, it was constantly sort of changing. So there, were, there was a mandate in place originally. My kids were sent home. A new mandate came out and said, so the first mandate was just, there were no guardrails, as they like to say, there were no guidelines. So the schools were all different schools sort of implemented it differently. So the mandate changed and they said, so long as 60% of the school is participating in the program, that's good enough. So we immediately got a call again to the, to the principal's credit. As soon as they got word about the policy change, they called and said, your kids can come back. We have more than 60% participating in us. And um, we- All right, Holly. While you're right there, we're going to take a quick break. You've got us on the edge of our seats. Everybody's wanting to know what happens. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come right back and we're going to hear the rest of the story from Holly McClure. Welcome back. You're listening to the Loving Liberty Network. This is the Liberty Mom Show, and we're so happy to have you join us. This is Delaine England, your host today, and we have Liberty Mom Holly McClure that is just telling us about what happened when their daughters, they chose for their daughters to use their constitutional right to breathe free and not to have to test to go back to school, that they did not have to prove that because they were healthy and that this this unconstitutional mandate was happening to the least fragile among us the health-wise as far as COVID and yet the most fragile as far as the the repercussions that were putting being put upon them so their family decided they had 
no choice but to act. So Holly, tell us what you decided to do as a family. Very difficult decision. So um, we, we, are we, sorry, are we back at the, you decided that you, it was time you were going to have to sue. Yes. School yeah, district. So yeah, once they, um, the kids did go back to school eventually, um, the, the health order changed. So we got a call from the principals. And once the health order changed and said that only 60%, so long as 60% of the school is participating in the test to stay program, um, our kids could go back to school. They had 60%. And, um, but this wasn't, this program wasn't going to go away. So the health order, eventually the, there were certain thresholds that came out with that, that revised health order. Eventually those went away. And so they suspended, our school suspended the program that said it would come back at any time. So we ended up hiring, um, a law firm and filed a motion for preliminary injunction against this program because they hadn't addressed the issue of what to do with parents who don't want to consent to the test. Um, so that was filed against the Utah department of health, the state superintendent of schools, our local county health department, and then our local school district. And kind of during the course of us filing that, um, again, these health mandates kept changing. And then eventually the program test to stay was put into law under um, SB 107. And so what that said was that anytime um, in the future, anytime going forward, that there was a COVID outbreak in a school and they did, they defined an outbreak, they changed the parameters, they bumped them up for the law. So if you, it has to do with the school size, but if you're under um, 1,500 students, I believe it's uh, like 30 cases in the school. If you have 30 kids test positive, this program automatically goes into place. Or if you have 2% of the school um, test positive, this program by law has to be put in place. And um, I think once the parties got together, once the, we filed the lawsuit and people started talking, there was just some confusion last year. It's a little bit more clear this year, but who, you know, who was in charge? Who was sort of the top of the pyramid? And so the schools thought it was the health department and the health department would say that it was the schools. And there was a lot of finger pointing. And I think what they realized was that um, there is no language. What came back was there is no language in SB 107 that says that one of the conditions is that if parents don't consent to the test, then their child can't receive in-person learning. That's not in the law. So what happened was all the parties basically agreed, hey, we can't force parents to test and we can't deny in-person learning to the parents who exercise their legal right not to consent to a test. And so the parties filed what was called a stipulated motion to dismiss. And so everyone agrees to dismiss the case based upon the stipulation. And so there's a very explicit language in there. Parents who choose not to have their children participate in a COVID-19 test, those children cannot be denied in-person learning because of that choice. Once that got filed with the court and accepted by a judge, it becomes a legally binding order that applies to the whole state of Utah, to all, all students, all parents in the state of Utah. And it's a good, it's a good uh, political sort of a political compromise. I mean, again, I think there are some you know, scientific questions. You could have discussions about whether or not what's the purpose of the program. People don't understand what the purpose of the program is. It's really meant to just be a canvas, voluntary canvassing of what's happening in schools actually during a community outbreak. It wasn't, according to the CDC, it wasn't really for school outbreak, but 
it gives schools. Right, because we didn't have a school outbreak. We didn't have a school outbreak. So it was weird that they're going to the schools when we yeah. don't have a school outbreak. And the community outbreak was, was not regarding minors. It was adults. Yes. Yeah, but I think, so I think, again, there's definitely scientific to be had there. And it doesn't make yeah. sense. Is it a good program? Yeah. But as a political um, solution, it gives schools a mechanism to stay open during an outbreak for in-person learning, which there are a lot of schools that do want to stay open. Um, and they don't have to violate parents' legal right not to consent to participate in the test. So it's kind of, it's a win for everyone, I think. Well, it's amazing. That is such an amazing thing that you went through. And I can't imagine the weight of this responsibility and this burden. And I know that I know you don't want to talk about how much it costs, but I know that it was a six figure expense. It cost your family a great deal. It came at great sacrifice to your family. And it says so much about your integrity and your character, because you're in such a difficult position. You love your children. You want them to be treated fairly and to not have their constitutional rights taken away from them. And you don't want to surrender them of your own free will. And so you really made such a a sacrifice. And the reason that I wanted to have you on is because you are such a great example. And I want everyone to know that it is against the law in the state of Utah to force you to test in order to go to school. No one can force you to do that. And you may have your administration tell you that if you want to come back to school, you have to test, but I want you to know that is not true. And that is because of Holly McClure and her family. So her husband is in this and her children had to sign on to this. They had to kind of agree, even if they didn't want to, (laughs) (laughs) which they may not have. I don't know, but that they were the ones that were kind of on the front line. So you have to really admire and respect them too, for what they went through. They're, they're the heroes in my book. Yes. And yeah. yes, I think it's your point is really important. We, I mean, we did this because it landed in our lap and we could, and we thought if it's not us, then who's, who's going to do it? Who's, who's the day that's going to solve this problem. And I just think it's so important for every parent to realize, as you said, understand there were a lot of laws that were passed to protect parental rights in regards to some of these COVID restrictions. SB 107 was there to keep schools open. And this ruling, it's just important for everyone to know you don't have to consent to the test. If it's something you don't, you don't want to do it. That is right. Holly, you're just awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your story and your time. And I really, really admire you for your great commitment and sacrifice for everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Okay. We are so excited to have our co-host Chris Kimball with us today. Chris and I just barely got back this morning from South Dakota, where we attended the Mike Lindell's election fraud symposium. I like to use the word election integrity, but it was um, election fraud or election integrity. I I suppose we can call it both ways, right, Chris? Well, he called it, it was called the cyber conference. Yes, he did. Focusing on the cyber side of the voter fraud issue. Yes. And, and the content was both about integrity and about fraud, because it really, we want to have, we want to have elections that have integrity. And we only know that if we check to make sure there is no fraud. And so uh, we, we're going to talk about our experience there. We're going to share what happened with us. I just kind of want to 
start by saying, you know, we are actually calling for a forensic audit, which is different than an audit. And we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there is a big difference in a forensic audit than a regular audit. A forensic audit is one that the data cannot be manipulated and it actually can be accepted as evidence in a court of law. We had a great visual when we got there that somebody had made up. Chris, do you want to? Well, we'll tell about the visual when we come back. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right right back to talk about the cyber in, um, symposium. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Mom Show. Liberty Moms are the original secretaries of the defense. We are the real defenders of the home front. And I am so happy to have Chris join us today. We don't get the opportunity to to do it together very often, Chris. So um, because Chris and I went to Mike Lindell's symposium, we thought it would be really fun to do the show together because we were both there. And we're just going to, we're just talking about, we're calling for the state of Utah and every state in this nation to do a forensic audit. And I want to make two things really clear right off the top. One is a forensic we're not putting any negative energy or presumption of guilt on anyone in the states. I do not believe that this is in most cases, it is not or election officers. I don't believe that it is that kind of a problem, but we run audits on everything. Every business owner does an audit. Very big businesses, they have a third party come in and do an audit. There's a reason for that because not that we distrust anybody, but because we want to verify. We want to be sure. And we always find ways to improve the system. And so, um, Chris, we were talking about the difference between an audit and a forensic audit, and they had a really great visual there at the symposium. Do you want to kind of describe that visual? Yeah, I, I do. I First, I do want to give a shout out to the Loving Liberty Network, because this cyber symposium yes. Mike Lindell put on was closed. It was invitation only, but Loving Liberty was the only network that actually showed up at the conference to be part of the media. And so my hat's off to them for wanting to um, look at this information and try to get this information out to the general public. And so um, that was quite an honor to be able to go out there. There were representatives. And by the end of the conference, it was a three-day conference. By the end of the conference, there was somebody from all 50 states that had shown up simply because they knew they had witnessed for themselves or they had heard from others who were in the election process that there had been some issues of some sort. Okay. And so uh, the idea that uh, this fraud was just in those swing states that seemed to be the key focus after the election is neg- it's, it's irrelevant now because we know that the fraud 
happened in every single state. There were irregularities. And if there's an irregularity, then that is just the time to go ahead and go in and just double check. Like Delane said, it's not a presumption of guilt. No one's at large, you know, you know, we're not casting a, a shadow of, of conspiracy of guilt against anyone. However, um, if there has been some sort of nationwide fraud, it went way beyond the levels of our state and has been in the planning for a very, very, very long time. And so that's why most of the elected officials, the county clerks, whatnot, are thinking that they've got their ship in shape, you know, that they're, they're, they're doing their job. So, you know, they're doing yeah. what they think is right. And they're doing what they've been taught, trained and educated yeah. to do. But now we, integrity. now we know better. We know that we need to look at this. You know, I mean, yes. in 2016, when the Dems thought the Russians were involved, who knew that this was a precursor that actually somebody has been involved in our election process? Yes. And it, there is anyway, so much evidence. It's we're not yeah. going to get it all in. There's so much evidence. And so they, yes, go ahead, Chris. So basically what a forensic audit does is, um, and again, this was a blessing. They talked about the idea that if we yes. had just gone in and done an audit prior, you know, after the election and, and just gone in and done the uh, audit the way they normally would have looked at things, we would never have had this information exposed to us. So they said it was actually a blessing that it went as it did and that the legislators did what they did, even though we felt like they should have stepped up to the plate more and done more. It actually was a blessing because on January 9th, when Mike Lindell received this 37 terabytes of information about the IPO addresses that were all online on November 3rd, talking to other servers, which is illegal, that right there exposed that we had some vulnerabilities in our election system. Okay. And most of these clerks didn't even know that their election, their machines were going online and and they, they don't believe that it is. If you ask them, they will absolutely tell you their machines cannot be connected to the Wi-Fi. And yeah, yet we have and, evidence, massive and, evidence that that is not the case. And as you talk about forensic, we have a forensic image that was turned in from uh, the Mesa County clerk's offices that had an image that showed that there was a, a back file updated into the program into their computer that said to release all the security files meaning any of the security stop measures that would be on that piece of equipment were released and so it would give anybody access to that system and they wouldn't have known that they she only saw that when they did the forensic audit so basically what a forensic a regular audit would you would count we had 10 votes and and uh, you know 10 apples voted and here's the audit. And we found that there were 10 apples. We, we, we matched those votes with the, with the audit. Here's the ballots. Here's the votes that happened. The ballots and the votes match. So we have the same amount and that's what an audit is just a regular audit. You're just like, yeah, the numbers match the numbers. Yeah. It's very, very superficial. So what a forensic audit does is it dives deeper and it will tell you, well, we had three apples that were yellow. We had five apples that were, a little bit rotted and not quite um, in good condition. And we had two that were red. So it actually goes down and gives real specific information. And that's where 
you have some irregularities because they learned that a ballot can be scanned multiple times and the machines will accept it. And that's not supposed to be the case. It should only be scanned once and then it gets kicked out. And so they've learned that that was the case in some places that they could scan ballots multiple times. And and then of course these IPO addresses, when we were there on day one, we had somebody out in the audience when they set up a mock election and had the, the server we had somebody out in the audience who wasn't even in the room where the election was taking place within five minutes, hacked the system and shut it down. It's that yeah. easy for people to get in and do that. We had two different people that are not, they are not cyber experts. They are not pros at this. They're regular citizens. And they were able to go in there and hack the system in, in less than five minutes, in like three minutes. And they are telling us like this system can be hacked from somebody's phone that they can get on there. They don't even, you don't have to have the machine. You don't have to have their machine. You can do it, you know, in, like I say, just on your phone. We'll talk about some of the software that is on the actual computers that, and it's not just Dominion, other softwares as well, other computers and their software, but what really I found super surprising was that there are these modems on the machines, which our clerks, like I say, our county clerks and election officers don't have any idea that they're there. And Chris Krebs, he is the President Trump's security officer over elections, and he did testify. We have his testimony in person in Congress and he admitted, he said, the voting machines include modems that can be disabled. And then they pressured him on this. And he said, in some cases, they are connected to the Internet. So we have the head of the cybersecurity admitting that in some cases they are connected to the Internet. So he didn't he didn't drill down to in what cases they are, but he did admit that they have modems and that these modems can be disabled, which means they can also be enabled. and. This is in itself just a lot of proof and a lot of evidence that there are problems. Then they shared with us that um, these computers, these voting machines, they have Microsoft software updates. And I think we all can, if you have a computer, you know darn well, Microsoft or whoever you have goes and says, hey, we need to update. Do you want to do an update? We're pretty used to that. Seems really natural and normal. Well, think about it. How do we update when we're not connected to the internet? Is it possible? I'm not, a, I'm not a cyber tech. I'm not a cyber geek. I don't know, but I know when I get updates on my phone or my computer, it's connected to the internet. So I don't know the answer to that. Another thing that we found out is the Microsoft SQL. And we're gonna talk about that as soon as we get back. So we'll stay with us, we'll be right back.
Welcome back. You are listening to the Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Mom Show. And we are talking about the cybersecurity symposium that Chris and myself went to. And we were just talking about what the hardware on the computers that are used for our elections, they have a, a system on them that's, that's called SQL, and it's um, MS for Microsoft. SQL is what, and then we, we call that an acronym SQL. And it's, it's tons of people know how to use the system. This is not an unusual thing. This is not something that is only for voting machines. This is something that uh, is on tons of computers and lots of people use it. Regular citizens know how to use it. And, um, and that, that is because of that system, that is how Easy, how easy it is to hack in because people know how to use it. And that is how the two people that hacked the system were able to do it in three minutes because of that SQL system. And then this was so surprising to me, Chris, this really blew my mind because they fed the ballots. We all voted and they fed the ballots into the exact brand and type of, of counter um, that they use in the, in voting and this is interesting because I, I have a question, like, why does this machine, why does it have printing capabilities? Like, it's a scanner. Why does a voting machine scanner have printing capabilities? And so weren't you stunned, Chris, when they, we voted and they put it in and it, they counted the ballots. They put the ballots in the, in the scanner. It came up on the monitors. You could see the votes. It counted them and you saw how many votes there were. We counted it by hand, then we saw on the monitor, it was identical. But then they were able to go have somebody hack it and go in and change the votes. And then they re they they came out, they they brought up the ballots out of the scanner. And the scanner, this was really interesting because the votes that they had in their hand, the ballots and the votes on the machine, they did match. So the ballots. There were, instead of being 10 ballots, now there were 13 ballots. The scanner printed the additional ballots so that the, that the when we did the audit, you would count how many ballots there were and how many votes there were, and they matched after someone had hacked into the machine. I think that is so problematic. And the question is, how does how do you make sure that doesn't happen? And how why do we have scanners? that have the capability of printing, why would they make them that way? Why would they design and build them in that configuration? Well, Delane, that uh, scenario was very eye-opening. And it was. That is most everyone in the room, the experts, whatever, just really got back to, we have to get back. I mean, obviously paper ballots could be manipulated because we saw the Sharpie gate where they, on election day, they had everybody use a Sharpie so that it would bleed through and that would create a ballot that would kick out. And then it had to be taken to a group of people who would adjudicate whether or not that person was really voting for that individual. So then somebody else is determining who is being voted for on that ballot because your ballot was kicked out automatically because you used the wrong hand, which they instructed you to use. So there were there's so many levels of uh, of 
fraud that can take place. And that's why it has to be a forensic audit, because otherwise, like you said, they shifted the 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 numbers through hacking it. But then the scanner printed out the number to accommodate those ballots. And so it would look like, yeah, we've got, you know, 10 apples here and 10 apples here, you know, after the fact, instead of looking at exactly where those came from. Oh, exactly. Ballots were printed off of the scanner. Right. (laughs) And And, and, and that hardware, that hardware is problematic. And it, it, it says just the fact that it has that capability says it was set up for it to be able to create fraud. It apps because there's no reason in the world for those scanners to have printing capabilities. Yeah. And it seemed like the, the real call to action right now for everyone to do when they go back home was to contact their clerk's offices to find out if Dominion has come in to do any updates because the yes. audit, that forensic image that we saw, they took an image of it before their machines had been updated by Dominion. And when they got, took another forensic image afterwards, part of the files were missing. Yes. A lot of them. Dominion had they gone were in. Dominion had gone in and deleted files. And those taking the data right out have of it. to be everything has to be ret- retained for 22 months according to a federal law. Everything that pertains to the election. So that's the ballot, that's uh any of the imaging in the in the machines the server, the routers, all of that has to be maintained by the elections office for that length of time. And a lot of times they'll just tell you, oh, we just have the ballots. That's all you need to worry about. And that is not true. You have to go in and look at the machines and do forensic images. And so that was the big thing that they're doing because Dominion right now is trying to cover their tracks on what happened on November Third, because they thought everyone would just kind of in March accept it and and just be complacent and not worry about it. And the fact that there are individuals who are stepping up to the plate and saying, no, there are irregularities that need to be addressed. We know a lot of them fraud and we have 37 terabytes of IPOs that were talking to a server on election night. That has to be addressed. That has to be addressed. And and everybody needs to know, citizens need to know, not even all clerks know the election laws. And citizens need to know, and I get your paper out because you'll want to write this down because it's really helpful to look this up and check it. But there, as Chris said, there's a federal law that requires all election data to be saved for 22 months. So it has to be saved. Why? So that it, there can a forensic audit can be done on that information. There's also a federal law that forbids all voting machines to be hooked up to the Wi-Fi. That is a federal law. Their machines cannot, by federal law, be hooked up to the Wi-Fi. And yet we have the head of a cybersecurity admitting, oh, sometimes the machines are hooked up to Wi-Fi. Violation of federal law. And, and then we have this evidence, as Chris was saying, that when that happens... When Microsoft goes in, according to their contract, they have contracts that say they can go in and do these updates. And when they do them, they wipe out the data. So there's all kinds of violations of laws right here. This is not one small thing. It's not an isolated thing. Um, it's it's really so problematic. And um, the, one of the other problems that we could easily see with machines, which is somewhat self-evident, is when you get on these machines, there's no real way 
to really verify the truth. And that there's not really a way to really do a hard case audit. It's very complicated. I know as a non-cyber geek myself, there was a lot of information there that was just like whoosh over my head. And that is why they asked cyber geeks and cybersecurity people with this kinds of knowledge and expertise to please come to the symposium. And he gave them full access to the information so that they could go in and, and he offered $5 million to anyone who could find fraud or falsification of the information that they shared. Nobody got that $5 million because they can't. And, and honestly, our county clerks, I mean, they're brilliant, they're smart, but I think that most of the people who, including myself and the citizens, we can't do an audit. We can't do a verification because these systems are so complicated and so convoluted. You can't figure them out. And yet these contracts that they have forbid the clerks to oversee. They forbid them to touch the machines. Why do we have contracts that the person in charge of the voting in our communities, in our counties, are forbidden to do any checking the machines out? They can't even touch them. That in itself, again, the, the contracts in themselves are problems. The machines are problems. We can see there's just so much fraud. We spend so much money doing so many different audits. There are so many. If you go to the state, you look and see. We do audits on um, unemployment. We do audits on um, you name it. There, we, we, yes. We have a state auditor. for. A we have a state auditor. But they <laughs> That's don't. his full-time job is to audit everything that goes on in the state. Yeah, every, every government bureaucracy gets audited by an, an out, out of house auditor. And yet we except have our elections, except our elections. We don't audit our elections. And what is more important to our republic than our right to vote and make sure that right to vote is protected and it's uh, honest. So remember that you are the guardians of your liberty and call your representatives and call for a forensic audit to be done. Thank you so much.